Hello, and welcome to our third podcast episode of a brand new series called The Waterloo Advantage. I'm Drew Patel, one of your hosts, a third-year mechatronics engineering student, and co-hosting with me is Mayan Kanoria, a third-year software engineering student. Today, we have our third very special guest, Catherine Gatowski, who will be talking about her co-op experiences and much more. So welcome, Catherine. Could you introduce yourself for our listeners? Sure thing. I'm a third-year double degree student, uh, computer science and business, business being on the Laureate side of things. Uh, my background is mostly in consulting and venture capital, um, but most recently I've made the switch into product management. So super excited to talk about that today. It's awesome. Um, yeah, I think I think I've, I have a couple friends in you know in CS and DBA. Um, mm -hmm. I've, I've heard a lot about like sort of differences there. I'd love to know like your take on like what you think the difference is between like the Waterloo side, the Laurier side, CS, BBA, and how they all sort of go together. Yeah, for sure. So I think the first thing to note is, is that computer science and business is I'm sure, you, you know, you know, and everyone listening knows um, are very different fields, but one thing that they both focus on is solving problems. The interesting thing to me is that they solve problems in very different ways. So as we know, like, computer science is a very um, logical algorithmic field of study. Um, problems are, you know, there's a there's an objectively correct way to solve problems, and there's a way that maximizes time efficiency, space efficiency, complexity, all that great stuff. Um, so very interesting to kind of do some more learning about that. Business is quite different. There is still an emphasis on solving problems, and I I'm, I think we'll talk about that more um, when it comes to you know case competitions and solving cases. But there's more of an emphasis on the quality of outcomes and. Uh, uh, you know, impact of, of a solution that you might make. There's no one way, one right way to solve a problem. A lot of it depends on, you know, qualitative decision criteria. So I think that it's really neat to be part of both degrees because you get an experience in problem solving in both disciplines, which are very different. Um, and I, I really enjoyed that myself. So like, do you find business as like a vessel to do something else or is or like, do you enjoy business as like the, the thing? Like, I, I think I've talked to a lot of business students that sort of, enjoy like look at business as a vessel um would you say you you sort of agree with that or have a different take on it uh yeah so i mean i love business i love studying it in an academic context and i love putting it into practice in the real world um i tried starting an entrepreneurial venture of my own it didn't really go anywhere but i hope to do that again at some point in the near future um but yes i think that it, what's really cool about business and i guess to an extent also in tech is that you know if you weren't in your position doing what you're doing now if you weren't an entrepreneur um, if you didn't you sort of take charge of things. Someone else would have taken your place, but might not have done things in the same way. And I think that's very different from other disciplines like, you know, law or being a doctor where, you know, it, it is a really great thing to have done that. But if you hadn't been there, someone else would have done something in your place in a very similar way. So I think that being part of, you know, business and tech is a way of creating a really unique impact on the world. And that's what I, I love about business. So I'm not sure if that's what you meant by using it as a vessel, but, but I really do love it in, in all senses of the field. Okay, yeah, no, that definitely answers my question. Just like a quick sort of like segue question, I guess, like, what was the venture you started? Like, if you're, you know, if that's something you want to share. Yeah, for sure. It was a venture called um, API. It was born out of uh, gaps that we saw in uh, the health tech space. So there's a, a new and emerging field of health tech called femtech, and that's health tech with specific applications to women's health, which is very important because historically that has been underrepresented by the mainly male developers and um, entrepreneurs that have launched ventures in that space. And so women's health needs and, and in general, the health needs of genders that are not male are very distinct. And uh, we wanted to set out a venture to kind of, you know, help women make uh, informed decisions by collecting better data on their health 
and um, presenting it in a way that that made more sense for for women. It was a good idea. Um, I'm still very passionate about the femtech space. I think there was a lot of problems with executing, and that's why it didn't you know turn out so well. Uh, but you know, I'm still passionate about that space, and I'm looking to see what else can be done, and hopefully, we'll be able to start a new venture soon. Yeah. Um, so, your uh, one of your co-op experiences was also in the health tech space, if I'm not wrong, at CareSplit. So, would you mind just explaining to us what CareSplit does, what your role was, and what experience was like there? Yeah, for sure. I'm just a little clarification. CareSplit wasn't a, a health tech startup. It was actually. Um, a startup focused on reducing the childcare burden for working families. So the purpose of that startup is to allow parents to share and swap childcare um, in this sort of village of care model. And that's really important, especially right now during COVID, because many, many women have been forced to cut back on their hours or quit their jobs entirely to manage childcare responsibilities. As we know that, you know, daycares and many other childcare providers are no longer in operation. So especially important now, the, you know, pandemic has led to what has been called the first great female recession. Um, so it's very sad, but I think that this startup is is doing some great things. And so yes, I did spend a summer with them. I interned with them. I worked as a product manager. I helped to bring their MVP to launch. And so that was my first real experience of product after a background in you know consulting in VC. And I, I just fell in love with it then. So yeah, I'm happy to, to talk about that more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, from what our research, Carespool looks like a very small company, around four to five people. Mm -hmm. So how was the experience with that? And as you mentioned, you built a, an entire MVP. An MVP started off the ground with small company, if you could describe the experience. Yeah, for sure. It was an extremely small company. Um, you're right, four, four to five people, I think, nails the number of people that were that were there. Um, and as, actually, as soon as I left, that's when they received their first institutional investment from Techstars. So it was a really exciting time for them. But yes, very early stage when I was there with them. Um, they... I think one of the things that I learned from that experience um, was about building an MVP with a non-technical team. Both of the co-founders are non-technical and there wasn't uh, any development experience within the team itself. Uh, they planned on outsourcing development of the actual technical product once that would come. So the MVP was built on a, on a no-code solution. Uh, so, you know, very interesting experience with like purely product management and none of the technical product ownership that I think would come in, in, a, in an adjacent role. It was very interesting to get to focus on, on just the product and just what the, the consumers wanted, just what the users wanted and not have to worry about actually how to build it. Although of course that would have been necessary in a later stage. So very neat experience. Um, I think what was so unique about working at CareSplit was how unique and under-researched this issue is of like women and childcare. There are a lot of factors underneath this, the scenes that I didn't fully realize because I myself am not a mother and I've never needed to seek out childcare, but you know, stigma, shame, all of these, you know, ideas that are wrapped up in the concept of asking for help as a mother, especially from friends, which was the, you know, the, the mission statement of our company. So, you know, working through those issues, really getting good understanding of the customer was, was super important for that business in, in particular. And um, very important for not just our products, but also like our, our branding strategy, our, our product marketing strategy, so on and so forth. It's very interesting, Catherine. Every time I like have a conversation with you, I, I start like getting like cool new terminology. Um, I think like you, you just mentioned, if we backtrack a bit about like, you know, the first female recession. Um, and I, I, I've never heard of it. I don't know about mine, um, but like, could you, could you like sort of talk to that? Like, I, I'm very curious to know what that yeah, is. Yeah, it all goes back to this point about, you know, childcare is becoming much more difficult now or has become much more difficult as a result of the pandemic. And so many women are leaving the workforce, um, either partially or entirely. 
So that term, I didn't come up with it. It's it's sort of one that's joined the lingo very recently. Um, you know, it has it basically just describes that process of women leaving the workforce. And so it's the first time that that's really happened on a scale as large as this. Okay, that's that's like super interesting. Yeah. Definitely got to read up on yeah. it. Um, I guess you sort of went into, you said this is like, like at CareSplit was one of your first like PM experiences. And I, I know like from, from my experience, my first PM experience was, you know, it, it was, it was sort of like tough, just at least for me, it was like breaking into it was, was a little tough, um, you know, trying to learn about it. Like my entire four months was spent a lot on like trying to catch up. Like how did you sort of go about learning PM? Are there any like books or reads that you would recommend for it? So the, the main books that I read, um, I think are fairly common. The Lean Product was the first book that I read, and that was the best help to me in terms of understanding product methodology and different milestones that you know needed to happen over the course of developing the product. Um, the Lean Product was one. Uh, cracking the PM interview, I read to sort of break into the field, but I actually was surprised at the number of insights in that book that were relevant to being a product manager in general. Um, I believe Decode and Conquer was another book that I read. Uh, again, same same concept. It's mostly geared at getting people prepared for interviews, but has really interesting insights for once you're actually on the job as well, especially for someone who you know, didn't have a strong background in, in software engineering beforehand. It was really helpful for me. Um, there are a couple of, of others that I'm blanking on, but uh, those are the main three that I think that I used. In terms of like how I actually you know approached it being new over the four months, I think it was exactly like you, Drew, uh, just trying to catch up, working as hard as I could to, to make sure that I was doing a good job despite not having had experience, spending my free time learning the product methodology, asking questions, being open to learning. Um, you know, none, none of the glamorous stuff, but the stuff that really matters when, when you're new at a, at a role. I think that's what helped me most. Yeah, for sure. I, I like, I hear you there. Um, I guess like, like, you know, I think I think I, I like look at PM as, as being sort of there's like two sets here. You can sort of be on like the business design side of things. You can be on a technical. Mm -hmm. You can also do everything. Mm -hmm. um, like where do you sort of stand on this? Like do you find that like you like technical PM? Do you like design PM or like doing everything PM? For sure. Um, yeah, so you're definitely right. I've, I've heard it categorized into four quadrants, like you were saying. Um, I would say that I, I definitely resonate more with the, the strategy PM, so the, the business-oriented PM. I do obviously have a technical background, you know, because I'm completing a computer science degree, and I have worked in a, a software development role prior to this. But I would say that that's where my real skills lie. Um, and that's where my interests lie as well, because as, as much as I think it's very interesting to bring a product from start to finish technically and to manage a team of developers really well, um, I think that the idea of collecting research and uh, creating data-driven decisions is, is more interesting to me personally. And so I recognize that that's also more of my strength. So that's really interesting to me, this ability to sort of apply your creativity, your analytical ability, um, your understanding of people, your empathy to create a way forward for the product. The strategy is the most important, or sorry, not the most important, the most interesting thing to me. Okay, so like, where would you say your weaknesses lie in PM? Um, yeah, uh, that's a good question. So I would say that I'm a very data-driven person, but I will also concede that I don't have a lot of experience with data analytics or data science in a formal setting. And so that's something that I'm constantly picking up as I'm on the job. Um, so I recently learned SQL in my free time, which was fun. I'm trying to learn more about Python as a scripting language and R. 
Um, I know that not all those things are necessary for a PM role, but I think a solid understanding of statistics does actually help when you're trying to push towards uh, the completion of metrics and so on and so forth. So statistics and data, I think, um, I wouldn't classify it as a, as a weakness. I think it's an opportunity for improvement, uh, but yeah, yeah. That, that's yeah, what I would sure. pick out. No, that's that's pretty mm -hmm. cool. Um, I, I found that like over time, like I, I've sort of been been leaning towards like being more of like an internal tools guy, like trying to just build like something small that like really helps um, helps in like analyzing a lot of the key metrics that I'm focused on as well. Um, you uh, like how? Sorry, yeah. Oh, sorry. So you mentioned that you recently uh, you've also done a software engineering internship mm -hmm. along with the PM role. So how would you differentiate between that? Do you think they go hand in hand with each other? And maybe what, what are your thoughts about like an engineering internship versus a PM role? For sure. Um, so my software development internship I had before I came to university, I did it when I, I was in my last summer of high school. Um, so with that said, I don't think I got the full experience of truly having a software engineering co-op. It was not, we didn't get the same volume of, as response volume of responsibilities as I imagine an older student would have. So just to put that as a disclaimer, but I think I can answer your question in that um, software, like they, they did go hand in hand, like you said. What I found as a software developer though, is that I was getting handed more of the ideas and asked to execute. Um, and although I could contribute ideas and uh, you know, the culture at RBC, which is where I worked, was very open to me contributing ideas. I was never the one who would take ownership of, of them. I wasn't the one who would um, coordinate the team. Like I could play a role in it, but it wasn't my formal responsibility. And so I just think the, the, the responsibility and the onus for each of those roles lies in, in different areas. That's, that's the main difference mm -hmm. that I would point out. Yeah, that's a really important point that he brought up. I think I definitely feel that being more of an engineering intern myself. Mm -hmm. And I think Dhruv can agree that a PM is more of an ownership role where you're actually taking ownership of a product and putting it to market. So, yeah. yeah. I was speaking to a, a PM the other day in the industry, and, and he was saying that as a PM, um, it really inflates your ego because you get a lot of the credit for the good work that your team does, but it's also a lot of pressure and responsibility because when things go wrong, it falls on you. And so definitely I would think that that, that responsibility and that onus, I'm sure that that's not true as a blanket statement. Uh, it's just that, that person's perspective, but I still think it's interesting to, to apply to kind of like the differences between those two roles. Yeah, for sure. I think like on the PM side, something that at least I found um, as much as like, I think data is interesting is like starting to build like a hunch or a mm -hmm. gut feeling and decision-making. Like, do you feel the same? Like you mentioned forming strategies and like using data, but do you find that like building a gut is also something that's super important? I actually don't think so. I mean, I, I think that it's important to have an internal compass of like what strategies would be good or bad in the sense that you should know what is totally unrealistic and what shouldn't work. But I personally, in my experience, following the data has led to better results than simply developing a hunch. Um, and I believe that the industry is recognizing that as well. I've seen all sorts of tools popping up that, that try to help PMs, especially platform PMs, which I think you mentioned you were, better use data to make decisions. So I'm a huge, huge advocate of, of data over, over a hunch. With that said, I do think that a product manager has to have the ability to create hunches, not necessarily for the sake of their product, but for the sake of managing a team. Like I think that that product people need to have very good people skills. And oftentimes creating a hunch about what works best as a management style or a leadership style is actually really important. So interesting that I think that that skill comes up, but just not in the area that, that you might. Yeah, no, I, I think and that's pretty interesting. Um, do, would you say like, like it, it would be, you know, just segueing sort of more into the business side is like, it's super important in like the, in probably like the business side of things. I don't know. Like I, I find that like 
punches tend to work. I, I, I've also found mm-hmm. data to work. Um, probably better. I no. should probably be more of a data, <laughs> database. Yeah. So, you know, one <laughs> thing I will say but, in yeah, the case yeah. competition environment, which I think is sort of maybe my best reference for what like quote business might be, um, hunches work well when you have a very limited amount of data. So like, you know, in one of that, in one of those environments, like a case competition environment, you get like a 15 page report on what the company is doing, what the problem is, and you have to prepare a solution based on that. And so, you know, I think that can extend itself to apply to any case where you have limited information, the less information you have, the more important that your hunches become. But that said, like, I don't ever think that there is an environment in the real world where you have such limited information that you can't use data at all. Um, I think maybe that's just, mm-hmm. you know, one way that it, it can come in, in handy. Yeah, so uh, you brought up your case competition experience, right? So <laughs> would you say your experience in all these case competitions has helped you in your PM role or helped you in your entrepreneurship experiences? Yes. and. I'll tell you why. For, I think there are two main reasons. Um, so first, actually, I may give some context to the, the case competition stuff. Um, so as I mentioned, I'm a double degree student. I go to Waterloo and to Laurier. And one of the big parts of Laurier's business culture, which I actually haven't noticed as, as much in other business schools, and so I feel very lucky to go to Laurier, is that there's a huge emphasis on case-based learning. And specifically on, uh, like, they have a really great case team that you can join and really develop your skills. So I was lucky enough to be chosen for that case team last year. Um, they, I did, you know, I happened to do a good job. So I was promoted to the international case team this year. And so I've had that opportunity to compete in, in competitions, you know, across the world, like Portugal, Spain, across Canada. So it's been really, really cool. I was supposed to go in person, but due to the virtual environment, um, not yet. Hopefully next year. <laughs> Um, so yeah, that's my main experience with, with case competitions is being on that team, getting the chance to compete with you know the smartest people from Laurier. It's been such a huge opportunity and, and a gift. But so yeah, that's just some context. But yes, that has definitely uh, helped me in, in two ways. I would say one, getting the chance to work on case competitions has you know increased my ability to think, to think critically, and to think under pressure. Um, and that has helped me in every aspect of my life. I no longer look at things and say to myself, you know, I have no idea where to start. I know actually how to apply a framework to a problem as a starting point to build off an idea. And to me, that is a super valuable skill that has definitely helped me when it comes to, to product and to entrepreneurship because there's so much dealing with ambiguity in those roles. So even the ability to have a starting point and to critically think is really important. But secondly, I would actually say there's also specific things that are that, you know allow me to develop my skills. Oftentimes, um, I think the uh, case competition circuit has shifted more towards tech and marketing focused cases. And so often like my, the things I've, developed in, in product, the skills and the knowledge are really applicable to case competition and vice versa, because I'm able to take the judges through a journey of what the customer wants and what they need, what they need and, and show how that's reflected in a tech product, which maybe someone who's purely business focused might not be able to. So there's definitely that mutual symbiosis there. Um, and so that's been really helpful to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I imagine like case competitions, like I I think I've never done one. I think I've been to like a yeah. hackathon thing that ended up being a case competition. Like I have not done one formally, I think. Um, would you, like, I think, I think if, if case competitions are like hackathons for business, do you think that they're like, how, how close are they to like a real business? Just like having like hackathons, you probably wouldn't, you know, focus on bugs and QA or the things you don't focus yep. on in the case competition. Yeah, very good question. If I had to characterize the difference between a case competition and, that, and a hackathon, I would say that they each fail in one area, but the area is quite different. In a case competition, there's no expectation that you'll ever create or even try to create anything that you're presenting. And in fact, it would be impossible to do so because oftentimes you're presenting strategies that a whole business has to implement. So it would be really impossible for you to create 
to, to put that into action at all. And so that really gets rid of the constraint of anything um, tangible and physical, which is which is great creativity. And it's so fun and interesting to be able to develop a strategy without those constraints. But at the same time, um, sometimes it can lead to solutions that are unrealistic. Makes sense. You have no constraints whatsoever. So um, yeah. that's, but that's the great part about uh, cases is that you can focus on the problem, you can create a solution and you don't have the constraints of anything physical. So that's what I would say about uh, cases. With hackathons, I find that it's often the exact opposite. Sometimes there's actually too much of a focus on solutioning and on applying a cool new technology or a cool new utility to a problem that doesn't really exist. It's almost like the opposite of a case, you know? You'll have a sponsor come in and be like, use our product, use our tech to create something cool, and we'll reward you if your application is the coolest. But that's not the that's not the foundation of really great products. So with hackathons, it's really cool how you get to execute and solution, um, you know, and that's missing from the case competitions, but the focus on the problem and the constraints sometimes make it such that the strategy can't be ideal or like at its best. So that's how I would classify the, the differences. I think there was a second part of your question that I totally lost track of as I was giving that rant. So feel free to repeat it. <laughs> okay. No, I, th I think you answered it. I, I, yeah, yeah, no, I think I think you really, you really answered it. I, I had no idea that like, you know, they, they were this different. Um, I, I always thought like they, they were somewhat similar. One was just technical, but that, that's actually quite eye opening. Um, what, what do you think is like, the most like impressive product you've seen you know like just like looking at a business and like like as a, at a product and like what do you find is like wow that pm did a really good job that is such an interesting question um you know so there are so many products that i use in my day-to-day -day that i absolutely love slack is one that i talk about a lot especially in interviews um but i actually think that for the purpose of this conversation i can focus on one um that I use in my personal life. And I know that this might be kind of like out of left field, but I think actually Hinge, like the dating app is a really, really amazing product that solves a lot of issues that I've seen with, with other dating apps. Um, I don't know if you guys have ever used Hinge, but basically uh, the way that it works is that instead of swiping on someone, you actually have to interact, interact with some component of their profile, whether it be liking a photo, uh, making a comment, responding to a prompt. And I find that that like elicits such genuine connections and responses as opposed to like, a culture where you just swipe unlimited amount of times on anyone. Um, and so maybe that's not the answer that you were expecting. It's just something that I happen to be using in my personal life right now. And so I think it's an example of a really cool product. I think whoever was the PM on that did a good <laughs> job of identifying what the pain points are for many people in um, with regular dating apps and was able to solve those really effectively. And actually, you know, um, Hinge is the highest penetration among people like me, like highly educated women. So I, millennial women at that. So I think that that's really interesting how they really knew their, I mean, at least from my anecdotal experience, they really knew their target market well. So. <laughs> it's actually really yeah, cool. Insights that I, I, mm -hmm. I find that really impressive. Yeah. Also, <laughs> just as a, a fan of really cool internal tools, uh, would you want to describe any tools that you use on a daily basis that maybe people would not know about or even in your PM role, things that you've used that are really cool, but you want people to know about? Yeah, I, I'm not sure that I can give one that's, you know, maybe nobody has heard about. The ones that I use the most often were like Notion, which a lot of people have heard about, and also uh, Mixpanel, which is a data, a solution for getting data on different, you know, your users' interactions with the product. Um, so both of those are really useful. They're, they're also very standard, um, so I wouldn't say that they're particularly unique. Um, yeah, I, unfortunately, I don't have a great answer to that question, but I, I recommend those two for anyone who's looking for like a, a knowledge management software personal knowledge management software in Notion and also 
um, just a data solution with Mixpanel. Yeah. As like a personal management software, have you ever tried Roam Research? I, I'm not. I'm not like. I'm sure you might have heard the heard of the product. Like I, I don't know if you've tried it. I have like, not heard of that. No. Really? Okay. You should look into it. It's a it's a very interesting product. I find that like. I have I have a couple of friends that that have like really really gotten me into it. Um, it's super interesting for like personal like personal knowledge management. Um, just like a, a quick like two cents on it is like it does this thing called like bidirectional linking, so it like helps you create structure from your notes. Um, super cool, super like super simple. Um, yeah, check it out. I, I, I really <laughs> awesome. like it. Uh, I think Notion yeah. recently added backlinks uh, on their pages, so yeah. they're trying to compete against Chrome Research. So yeah, yeah, for sure. It's an interesting space. I, I definitely think like the personal knowledge space has like gotten a lot of hype recently. Um, mm -hmm. and I think it's going to keep getting hype over time. Uh, I want to see where it goes for sure. Okay, so uh, coming back to something you mentioned about case competitions, about how you want to research problems and try to understand problems, right? Mm -hmm. What's your general uh, approach to problems, like understanding a, a whole new space that you might not know about? Good question. Um, okay, so when it comes to approaching a space that I don't know much about, um, I guess the first thing that I try and do is just read without the intention of figuring anything out. Um, so try and, you know, skim or read like the available information on that subject uh, from like credible sources, just to get an understanding of what that is. Um, and then kind of like look at what the experts have said about the way that that field is structured. Um, so for the average person, like sometimes this can come from unexpected sources. There are a ton of like really great YouTube videos about different industries and how those are segmented, which, you know, make the information palatable and easy to understand. If you're looking for a more academic approach to it, there are also a lot of, you know, papers and journals that, um, especially like literature reviews that, that kind of, uh, examine an entire field and, and segment the most important points. Um, and so that's where I would sort of start if I was trying to, to understand like a, a layout or a map of how it's structured. Um, I guess after that, it just comes down to picking a, a space or like a space within that space to learn mm -hmm. about it and research. Yeah. Do you have a preference for like academic versus like other like, you know, cool YouTube channels or something? Like, do you pick one over the other or is it just like wherever you find the best and most relevant? Uh, yeah. So generally if I'm trying to learn something quickly and I want it to be fun for myself, I prefer to use something like a YouTube video. It also depends on how controversial the subject is. I wouldn't want to rely on a YouTube video for like a very politically biased or, you know, other otherwise controversial subject. Um, I wouldn't trust the bias to not be there. Um, but for most subjects, it can actually be quite great. Like there are a lot of really good creators on there. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. Um, I think, I think like, before we keep going on, I, I have like a really hopefully an interesting question. Um, I you you do a lot of things. What do you think? Like, wh what would you say? Like, sort of like your narrative is like like how if you had to like tie it all together in like a one to two sentence, mm -hmm. like this is my narrative. What would it be? Um, you don't have to have it. I, it's just a, I would it's say my narrative is I find <laughs> something that, that I like and then I do it. That's I feel like this is why all of my experiences are very disjoint. I've jumped around from industry to industry. It's because I realize that there's a better fit somewhere else. And so I'm constantly searching for that best fit. I think I've found it in, in product. I'm very happy with the work that I've done so far. But even within product, there's so many different aspects, areas, like technical product management, product ownership, product marketing, like, you know, strategy product management, all these different areas and different kinds of products as well that 
Um, I'm still on a search and I'm still quite young. So I think that's fine. But yeah, I, I wouldn't say that there's an overarching narrative beyond this idea of really wanting to integrate like the tech and the business, because I believe that that's such a really cool and radical course of change in the world. But yeah, beyond that, it's mostly just finding what I like and doing it. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. I think like one of the biggest challenges I've had in an approach and uh, just approaching things I like is like the concept of opportunity cost. Like, how do you like if I that? do something with my time, there might have been something else out there that, you know, I, I didn't do and it might have been better for me. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. Like that is a very real concern. I think the beauty of being in Waterloo, um, and I admit that I have a huge amount of privilege to be able to say this, like this was not an opportunity that most people are afforded with, but being in Waterloo has given me the opportunity to try out a lot of different things through co-op. So in my short, you know, career of, you know, let's say like four years, um, I've had the opportunity to try out like development, product management, consulting, like that's a lot of things. That's four different fields that I've had the attempt, like the chance to dip my toes into. And I wouldn't say that I've gotten the full taste of all of those fields, but I've gotten enough to know whether I like it or not. So, you know, mm-hmm. as a young person who has been afforded that opportunity, I don't think that opportunity costs all that much because I know that I'll have the chance to try the things that I like. Um, and, and that's just a privilege that I, that I have. But I would say that to anyone who's young, um, we feel, especially at Waterloo, we feel a lot of pressure to sort of figure things out early. The opportunity cost of time, uh, I think is massively overinflated. As like as the young person, that's not the thing that we should be worried about. We should be worried about getting the widest breadth of experiences to be able to know what we like. Because if not, there's always going to be this voice that asks, "What if?" And so, I understand the opportunity cost is a really big concern, but we've been wired to think that way. And I, I don't, I think, do, unwinding some of that thought process um, can actually be really beneficial. Yeah, I think I think that's that's pretty interesting. I, I think I've come to like very similar conclusions about opportunity costs. Like I've, I've just been so like fed up with it recently. Um, so yeah, no, that's that's very that's really cool. Um, I, just like sort of segueing back to like product and like product management and like sort of your passion there. Um, I know that you you've sort of started mm-hmm. something called the product initiative. Uh, like what what is like what is the product initiative? Yeah, for started? sure. You know, um, so at the start of the pandemic in March, a friend and I saw how badly it was affecting um, younger students, especially, and it's still going on now. I just looked at the co-op statistics, you know, yesterday for for first year students, and it's pretty abysmal. And that makes me sad because uh, work experience, especially for younger students, is a really great way to gain um, soft and technical skills. So my friend and I in March got thinking about what we could do to combat this this, this issue, which I know is not the most pressing issue to do with the pandemic, but it was an issue that was affecting our community nonetheless. And so the solution that we came up to came up with is that, in, you know, for students who have lost their jobs due to the pandemic, let's offer a way for them to create their own projects and their own products through an incubator that gives them the skills they might have otherwise learned through the job. So the product initiative is an incubator that uh, pairs together aspiring product managers, designers, developers, and business analysts from schools across uh, Canada and the States to work on, on tech products for social good. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what's really fascinating and amazing what can have happened due to this initiative is that um, not only did we did they get like sort of work experience and project experience out of it, but a lot of those products actually launched like for real into the real world. And so um, a couple of them have launched onto the, the Chrome store, um, the, the Google Play store, and that's really, amazing like for them and and also i think it's amazing to see um what i was able to to help not to say like i can't take credit for the work because it really was the student's work but it's just really cool to see what kind of impact um i feel like we were able to have by by doing something so small so really really cool experience Mm -hmm. 
So, uh, yeah. yeah no. So, uh, yes, through the product initiative, are you targeting students in their first year, or is it open to students across all years of the schooling? Primarily targeted at first and second year students who have the least amount of work experience, but we did take a couple of third year students for like the leadership roles simply because, um, you know, they were qualified. They also were at a disadvantage, and um, because of their age, we felt that they had more of like that leadership ability, which is not always true, but it wasn't in, in this case. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I'd also love to know a couple of the products that were launched. Like, just out of curiosity, if you want to talk about any of the products that were launched. Yeah, so I think the one that uh, you know, I'll, I'll bring up one. It's called Pali Pali, um, and so it's a tool to help students. I, I mean, not just students. Students were their target market, but allow people to avoid procrastination. Um, and so they were a Chrome extension that um, allowed, I mean, at the time, it might have pivoted since then, allowed students to uh, segment time on certain sites and have this like friendly character come up and remind them and take them to the, to the a different site once there are a lot of time used on, on a site that was not good for their productivity. Very convoluted explanation for a product that actually was quite simple. But the unique thing about this product is that after it finished with our incubation program, um, it actually got accepted into the DMZ incubation program. So yeah. I've been able to keep up with their progress, and that's been really cool. So I, you know, I uh, I have it downloaded myself, and it's, it's been <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sounds like something that I would definitely use. You know, yeah. I spent way too long on YouTube, so if I can get a reminder <laughs> to move yeah. to a different side, that's always useful. And what was uh, and is that like through that process. Um, they came up with use cases that I wouldn't have initially thought of. So, you know, you mentioned YouTube. That is a big source of procrastination, but there are also really productive things that come out of YouTube. Like one of the examples they gave was like listening to lo-fi lo hip-hop while you're doing your assignment or, um, you know, doing a Chloe team workout. And so they had to find ways to sort of navigate those use cases that actually were productive with their solution. And I thought that was really cool. I just wanted to bring that up. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. And... Uh are you guys thinking of how to scale the program in the future or what are the plans for the program in the future? Uh, you know, again, good question. Um, right now, the concern isn't scaling simply because uh, our leadership team, like we're still students and we're not sure what kind of impact the program would have once like the pandemic is no longer an issue. Um, however, it's something that we will spend more time thinking about. So I don't have an answer for that right now, but uh, mm -hmm. definitely a question worth considering. Yeah, that's definitely fair. Just like a little more on the program itself, like how does the program work? Like what's the breakdown? Like what yeah, do I sure. do? So the first like, thing that we do is we, we pair students with uh, other students of complementary skill sets. So like I mentioned, the designers, analysts, uh, developers, product managers pair a few of each in one team, have them work on solution or uh, identifying a problem space in the first couple of weeks to really make sure that they understand uh, the problem that they're trying to solve. We equip them with modules on software development, uh, product management, whatever you know area that they're in, educational modules. Um, they're paired with an industry mentor. So this this term, we were really lucky to work with mentors from Google, Uber, Microsoft, Facebook, all of whom were able to lend their time and did so happily, which was really eye-opening for me. And I thought that was very generous of them. Um, and then over time, they switched to solutioning and then eventually to actually building the product. So there's a really big emphasis on finding the problem and focusing on the problem before moving into solutioning, which I really like about the program. Um, and I think it's really good for students because not a lot of them are coming in with their entrepreneurial ideas already. So it's important to help them along that journey instead of expecting them to pick up their solution right away. Yeah, for sure. Um, like, I guess an interesting question here is like, at least for me is like, how many, how many 
like sort of students do you have in the initiative or like were you like overwhelmed with like the response you had um yeah you know, um so the program is quite small uh it's quite diverse not there are many students like many universities involved there are actually six um but the number of students we tried to keep small for the program because uh you know, we, it was our first time running it. So in the last cohort, I believe we had around 20 to 30 students, somewhere in that range, and similarly around like 15 mentors. And so that was, um, it doesn't seem like much, but it was a lot for us to coordinate in that very first term. So, you know, the question that Maya asked me, are we planning on scaling? It would definitely be useful, would have to grow more than that. Um, it's just a question of how to best grow. Yeah, wow. Well, I mean, 15 to, 15 to 20 and then like getting some real products launched out of that, Thanks, like, that's yeah. a really good success rate. Uh, like, I, th I think that's really sweet. Um, how do you find like this, like, like these people or like this, this talent, like, do they come to you? Just like, do you, like, how do you yeah, get people um, to come out so and do this? A lot of students, so the kind of like the initial pool of students who applied to us was from Waterloo because of the networks that me and my co-founder had there. Um, a lot of students from like found out about us through PD courses where people post about the initiative um, or Facebook or various other platforms um, on social media. Uh, so they were the primary people who found, us, found out about us. A lot of them then would go and tell their connections in other universities um, who they knew, you know, were lacking a job about the program as well. So it, it spread out of Waterloo. Mm -hmm. So uh, something you mentioned about the program is when students come into the program initially, you spend a lot of time understanding the problem, just defining a problem, right? Mm -hmm. So this is a very hypothetical question, but let's say you were a student in the program. Mm -hmm. What's the kind of problems you would want to solve? And what's the kind of problems that you are really concerned about right now? Yeah, so um, good question. I would actually bring us full circle to the very beginning of the interview when we were talking about femtech and also like women's tech in general. I'm not sure if there's a specific word for it outside of femtech, but <laughs> um, basically the stuff that CareSplit is doing and also that APO was. I'm really passionate about that space right now because uh, because of the unique disadvantages and problems that, that women are facing at this very moment in time. Um, I, I think that it's a problem that's under-addressed um, because it's so new. And so a lot of incubators you know, and accelerators like Techstars have been investing in those spaces, but I think it's right for opportunity and also um, a place that can help many people. So I think I would start by getting an understanding of, of femtech, both health related and, and not, um, and then gradually go from there to see which problems I think that I could solve. It's pretty cool. Um, I guess like you, you've also done a bit of like things in, in VC. Like I think I saw that you work with like Contrary and, and, and have done a, a few other things. I'm not sure what your background is in VC. Um, like, what, what mm -hmm. got you interested in it? So again, just for the sake of clarity, Contrary is a VC. I'm not investing on their behalf. I'm part of their talent program. Uh, I don't know why they picked me, but I'm very grateful that they did because it's been a really, really great experience. Um, so that is more just being part of a community. I don't invest their money. Uh, with regards to the VC experience that I do have, um, right now I'm an investor with Front Row Ventures. So that's Canada's student-led VC fund. Um, and last co-op term, I worked... Mm -hmm have for a venture philanthropy firm. So they're not exactly venture capital, they're a nonprofit, but they utilize methodologies from venture capital to invest in the highest uh, growing, most innovative startups, like startup nonprofits in, in Canada. So uh, they're called LEAP, they're very, very cool organization. Those I say would be my two main experiences. I did a fellowship with Romulus Capital, which is a, a B2B uh, 
uh, venture capital firm in Boston. Um, it was not paid. I was not investing their money. It was more just like an educational experience. I would say that the last two are the ones where I gained most experience in BC. Um, one of the things that I, I really loved about BC, we know that you know the, the tech and startup ecosystem is growing so rapidly. I would say that BC is, is the fuel for that growth. Um, if you think of a startup like a rocket ship, it needs fuel and that's money. And so I think that, that venture capital is just a really cool way to help launch the careers of some really cool entrepreneurs and launch some really cool startups and getting to examine the field and invest money into the best ones is such an interesting um, like career path. Yeah, for sure. Would you say like, you know, along with entrepreneurship, you would eventually want to start like, you know, go and raise a fund and then start investing. Yeah. Um, eventually the build thing your own that is that turned me off about BC is I love the strategic ambition of going and investing in the best startups. And I love talking to entrepreneurs. I love doing like quality due diligence. The place that where I don't really find a fit is like the actual finance work. I'm not a finance person. I find it very boring to sit in an Excel sheet and try and work out numbers and formulas. I understand that some people are great at that and I think they're geniuses. I just can't do it myself um, in that. Like I don't want to, it's not something that interests me. So that's what sort of stops me from pursuing that as a career path. Uh, and I imagine I probably will feel the same way, even if I were at the end of my entrepreneurial journey. So I don't think so, but I'm not putting yeah. it out of the question. Is there anything like, like very unique or, or like, you know, some, some like something interesting that you've learned about building startups from working at VCs, like something that you didn't learn from the actual startup? That's actually a very interesting question. Um, I think the biggest takeaway that I had um, or that I, I currently have because I'm still working at, at Front Row is strangely how important an entrepreneur's background is. I was always under the impression that anyone from any field could go and become an entrepreneur. And I still believe that that's true, but I never recognized how important the classic, you know, business and technical co-founder, um, like, you know, good education, good work experiences. I never realized how important checking off those boxes was if you want venture funding. So that doesn't relate to necessarily being a better entrepreneur, but for me, that was a very eye-opening thing. And so I, I, I believe that there are improvements that can be made to venture capital and the way that people are funded, because I don't believe that simply reliance on its background is the best reason to, to cut someone or to cut someone out of a, an investment. So that's the biggest learning I, I would say in terms of like how to be a better entrepreneur, like what I learned about running a company. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd have to think on that one. I don't think that I actually learned that much because I wasn't working with the, the companies themselves. Um, so I was more just like investing, purely investing. So using the same metrics, the same kind of like things every time to see if it would be a good investment. So I'll have to think on that one. I'm sorry I can't give you an answer right now. <laughs> no. <laughs> you... no worries, no worries. Um, oh, sorry. I, yeah, so I think, you've yeah, worked on both sides of the aisle, right? So creating a company and like the other side, which is actually getting the funding as a, as a VC. Mm -hmm. So... Do you think there's any sort of misconceptions or inefficiencies in either side that maybe the other side doesn't know? So a startup founder might think it's a it's an like inefficiency or a misconception, but they just do not know the information because they're not on the VC side, right? Or vice versa. Mm -hmm. Again, that's a good question. I feel as though there is based on what I've observed, a lack of transparency, especially on the VC side of things. Sometimes I feel as though entrepreneurs will pitch and it kind of goes into a black box and 
the decision comes back out and it's um, it's not very transparent. And that can be kind of, you know, unmotivating or demotivating for an entrepreneur who doesn't know why their business was rejected, you know, and so on and so forth. What I saw at Romulus that I really liked and also what we try and do at Front Row is always explain exactly to the entrepreneur why their business was rejected, why their venture was rejected so that they can improve and come back to us later when when they've iterated based on our feedback. I think that's a really great way of approaching it because you, you develop a relationship with the entrepreneur and get best access to the deals because you had this, this mission of first and foremost helping founders instead of simply judging them. And, um, you know, that, that was actually Romulus's mission statement, building, not betting. So, you know, I, I think that that was uh, a good takeaway, you know, in terms of like what I think they can learn from one another. Um, I think entrepreneurs should know that when VCs are going back and making that decision in the black box, it usually, or from my experience, it's been quite an informal process. A lot of it is based on subjective factors, qualitative factors, um, you know, to a shocking degree from what I've seen. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I would, I would recommend for uh, founders not to take things super personally, to use whatever feedback they get to, to iterate their business if they want to get investment from that venture capital firm. Um, and and to maintain that relationship because a no one time does not necessarily mean a no forever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. I was like, that was going to be my next question: whether investment is more of a gut feeling than like straight up numbers. Whether there's a yes or no formula, or you know, I'm just taking a risk based off of my gut feeling, but mm -hmm. that clarifies it a lot. Mm -hmm. And uh, just from your experience as you know, a part of the VC firm industry. Do you think there's uh, like spaces which are getting oversaturated in terms of like uh, problem spaces or and the other side? So spaces that are coming up that people might not know about that are very interesting um, to like look into for problems. Um, I would say that, you know, there is an oversaturation of investment where buzzwords are involved. A lot of companies like to use terminology like artificial intelligence, machine learning, blockchain. Uh, internet of things and investors are so desperate not to miss out on a deal that they will kind of throw their money at everything that has that buzzword as long as the entrepreneur has a reasonable background and is credible that's sort of the thing the trend that i've noticed in bc so i don't necessarily know if i would call it oversaturated but i would say that there is a redundancy there and that not all of the companies that are doing things like that and have funding invested into them are worth pursuing i think there's a lot of redundancy in terms of um areas that I think are up and coming. Again, not to sound like a broken record, Ventac is a huge, huge growing um, uh, problem space that VCs are wanting to invest in. I mentioned that Techstars specifically sought out companies in that space for their most recent round of funding um, because they, they believe that problem space is so important. So that's a big one. Um, I would say, yeah. I've done a bit of research on quantum. I think that is an emerging space. We're nowhere near um, like the, the uh, you know, commercializing it to the extent that it would be mainstream, but uh, very emerging. I think that within the last couple of months, actually, a few companies have claimed that they've reached quantum supremacy, which is really cool. That means that the quantum computer can um, do things that a, a normal computer could not do in millions of years. So that's very, very neat. Um, and so the applications of quantum to specific streams is very interesting. So let's say like quantum to financial, uh, the financial industry or quantum to you know, drug development, all that stuff, I think is very emerging. And I'm excited to see where that goes. It's pretty cool. Um, I think, 
think one thing that that I really like to look into, um, or at least have looked into recently, is is like how to get conviction behind certain problems, right? Like I think that you're pretty convicted behind like the femtech space. Um, I just want to like understand like how like you, you've sort of gotten there. Uh, yeah. With- uh, so you know the conviction that I have, it's not purely an investor's conviction. It's a con- like a conviction coming from me as an entrepreneur, but also me as a person. So the reason why I feel that I have a focus on, on Femtech or part of the reason why is because if I don't, no one else will. It's, it's a space that is so underrepresented and there's so, there has been so little focus and attention on it until recently that um, it's important to advocate for the space first and foremost. And I believe that advocacy will lead to growth. Um, so I'm passionate about the space and, and that's why I choose to have such a strong conviction about it because I believe it's something that needs to be addressed. And a belief is something that's much more subjective than like an investor's conviction about a space. So I, I hope that clarifies like that. Um, in terms of like how do you create a conviction I- in general, you know, <laughs> comes back to our whole hunch versus data uh, perspective. I think just examining, um, you know, precedent, but also using the information that you have from, you know, similar examples in the, in the past of, of parallel technologies and trying to use those to make predictions about where certain industries will go is, is the best way to make a conviction. <laughs> yeah, that, that really does answer my question. I think the, the earlier when I sort of looked at it, it was like, I think I'd really enjoy it. Like, you know, in like 60 years, I would love to like work mm-hmm. on things that, you know, nobody else would work on if I wasn't working on it. Right. Um, I think you said basically the same thing um, at some, at, or something similar, I guess. Um, that's pretty cool. You, like, you do, you, I mean, this, this like, continues to impress me, Catherine, is like, you do so many things. Like, how do you manage such a busy lifestyle and are so successful at it? Like, are there any techniques, mental, secrets? <laughs> like, how do you do it? So <laughs> this awesome. is, I feel like I always sound like really silly when I say this, but I actually really firmly believe that too much free time is bad for the soul. I find that when I do less or when I do too little, my mental health is worse than when I do the amount that I do now. And I'll explain why. I think that when um, I have too much free time or when people in general have too much free time um, in today's environment where, you know, we're so isolated from our families, like I recognize it might have been different in the past, but, you know, in today's environment, um, it, you know, it can cause them to do things that aren't productive. So for example, when I have a lot of free time, I go on social media, I uh, waste time watching TV, I, I, like I go on Netflix, and that's just a product of the era that we're in. And I find that by being busy, I'm able to avoid that stuff. And as a result, like the amount I'm actually engaging with people around me, my life really increases. So I know that was a very convoluted way of saying, that basically, when I do more, I procrastinate less. Um, but uh, I really do think that's true in today's era. And for people who can avoid that entirely, I totally, you know, believe that they can do less and be very happy but in my case i find that i'm much more engaged when i do more so i hope that answers the question um in terms of how i manage and keep my mental sanity up um, i yeah. think a lot of it comes to you know adopting healthy habits i think exercise is really important i always make sure to put some time in my day for that um, i've used socializing as almost something uh you know similar to exercising and that you need it to have a balanced lifestyle people will try and avoid socializing and social interactions because they want to be productive or want to do work but it's just as much a part of a balanced lifestyle and it helps you be just as productive as something like exercise so very clinical way of looking at the idea that you need to have friends but um, i think having good social life and exercising is you know really important to to this lifestyle 
Yeah, I think I think I agree with you. Um, just mm-hmm. by like devil's advocate, I, I I usually like doing this. Um, like, how would you like when when do you like sort of like sit down and reflect and assess what like all the things that you're doing if you don't have free time? Um, like, but, like, what do you think of sort of just assessing? Yeah, uh, I've been trying to meditate more. Um, I think that because of I find it very difficult. So I imagine that for someone who meditates, that might give them some more clarity into into their life. And so I'm trying to adopt that practice more. Um, but I also wouldn't disregard the value of the moments in between. And I was reading this really interesting article by Kunal Gupta, the CEO of Polar, which is like a, he's a Waterloo grad and he went just found this really successful advertising technology company. He was, he wrote about the value of the, the moments in between, like the moments when you're, on the toilet or in the shower or walking from place to place. How you feel in those moments is very indicative of how happy you are with your life and you should pay attention to the thoughts that come up there. And so ever since reading that article, I've been trying to be more in tune with those moments. Um, I know that they're short and brief because I'm so busy, but uh, by doing that, I feel like I've been able to get a better grasp on how I'm feeling and adjust my life accordingly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that's like, like all the questions I have, I think, uh, I think that was, that was a super, super, super like packed and like insightful I think, conversation. So I think one question always we always do at the uh, end of a podcast is any kind of advice that you would want to give to like listeners, students coming into Waterloo, anybody mm-hmm. in general from life PM, like any of the things you've done. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I think, you know, one piece of advice that I really would have benefited from coming into Waterloo is the knowledge that um, things won't always be easy or okay. And, and that's okay. Like there are ups and downs in, in life. So I'm really happy now. Uh, you know, I have a very balanced lifestyle, but it wasn't always that way. I've had very rough patches over the past two and a half years. And um, I wish that I had better internalized that that was normal. I think that sometimes... Um, and and I, re- I realize that sometimes other people look at me this way and, and feel bad about themselves because they feel like I'm thriving and they don't understand why they can't do the same things. Um, I feel that way about other people a lot. You know, everyone feels that way about each other. And so um, if you feel like you're not thriving, first of all, that's okay. Sometimes you can't thrive. All you can do is just survive a moment. If it's very difficult or you're feeling, feeling very overwhelmed, it's okay to simply be and not to be your best, I think, in that moment. So surviving is more important than, than thriving. Although, obviously, you want to eventually um, reach that, that point. But you shouldn't put pressure on yourself, too, if it's a very difficult point in your life. Um, the second thing I would say is uh, don't, like, don't compare yourself to others because everyone feels like an imposter when they look at everyone else. And so I know I feel very insecure on some days about things that other people have accomplished and I haven't. I know that other people look at me in that way. I mentioned that. Um, and so, you know, don't feel bad about yourself and put pressure on yourself. Uh, it's not productive. You know, just be you and, and do your best. <laughs> That's my advice. Yeah, That's some really solid advice, yeah. For sure. Well, Catherine, thank you so much. It's been, it's been a great pleasure to learn more about your co-op and your passion for product and your insights in this domain. Um, yeah, this has been an amazing episode with another brilliant mind from our own University of Waterloo. Um, so that's it, folks. See you next time with another episode on the Waterloo Advantage. <laughs>